In 100 years, you, me, everybody listening to this episode of this podcast will be dead. Gone. In 100 years, we will all be gone. Nothing will matter. It puts into perspective some of the things that we take as very big problems or big challenges or big embarrassments. In 100 years, none of this will matter. None of the people concerned will matter. We will all be dead, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. My father told me life is not a This is Origins Africa podcast, where we explore the origin stories of people who have made and are making their dreams come true. Asking the what, the when, the how, and the why. I'm Oshaye, and on this episode, the first of a two-part conversation, we meet John Obidi, Director of Growth and Partnerships at Abit Networks, a blockchain and cryptocurrency solutions company, as well as the founder of Head Start Africa Community, formerly Smart B Camp, a community dedicated to closing the knowledge gap among working professionals in Nigeria. You will hear John talk about his journey into blockchain and his current role at Abit Networks. He will also talk about his early childhood experiences as well as the defining moments that shaped who he's become today. This interview was recorded in April 2021. Over the years, John has evolved and has worn many hats. Thought leader, digital media. But today, in, uh, in this, ah, sometimes even philosopher. But today, um, in this present incarnation, um, I'm the director of growth at Abit Network. Abit Network is a blockchain and cryptocurrency company that creates blockchain solutions for everyone. And so that's what I major on right now. I'm in the business of blockchain and cryptocurrency, and I help the company drive growth. I just joined the board last month. Um, by the time this episode is aired, I think the announcement will be public. So that's what I do now. Um, even though, you know, I've come a long way. I used to be a programmer in my way, 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 way previous life. That is uh, pre-2013. And okay. I used to be a web designer then, and that was the beginning of this whole journey. So, but at this point, um, what I do now is harnessing all my past experience into driving growth for Abit Network, um, the blockchain and cryptocurrency um, company whose board I just became a part of. Would start from there, and it's interesting because oh, I think when I was doing the research in you, um, it was in 2018 or was it 2019? You had been interested and curious about blockchain and cryptocurrency, and then there was a training in Dubai that you had gone on to attend to learn more about it. So, between then and now, how have you evolved to now become someone who's driving growth and partnership in Abit Network? Oh, I've, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I have always loved tech, and so. Back in 2018, I thought, you know what, people were talking about cryptocurrency, you know, back in Nigeria. I was in Lagos at the time. I was based in Lagos. And then 
people were talking about it and I, I, I felt embarrassed that as someone who prides myself as a person in tech, I knew next to nothing about it. So, you know, I was, I'm someone who you could always ask anything on tech and I could answer you. But at that time, ask me about blockchain, cryptocurrency. I knew nothing. It was, it was like, I'm like, what is this? It made no sense to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was hard. And I felt ashamed that I, I thought it was hard. You know, mm-hmm. um, because I've, I've always been a top student in school throughout, you know, so for something to just, for people, I, I see guys on the streets are speaking fluent crypto and I, you know, I was <laughs> unable to. <laughs> so I said, you know what, instead of looking for where to pick up the pieces, um, I'm going to look for a, 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 an event in Dubai or an event anywhere in the world to attend. And at the time there was one happening in Dubai, it was called the Future Blockchain Conference. It's, it's yearly. So, you know what, I'm going to Dubai and Dubai at the time, and even still now was marketing themselves and positioning themselves as, as the blockchain capital of the world. I said, okay, if that's what they call themselves, where else to learn this than at the capital at the blockchain capital. So I booked a flight, um, came to Dubai and attended the event. How much was the conference? Could I ask that? I found the tickets on Eventbrite. Um, the conference itself wasn't very expensive. I think even the VIP tickets were at were like two hundred dollars. Okay. So we could pay flights to and from Dubai. I mean, two hundred dollars wasn't much. And I think they were even giving giving discounts. So if you had a regular ticket, they were giving free upgrades to VIP. So I just took that one. Yeah. So it wasn't really that expensive. And a lot of these events happened for free. Again, this was pre-COVID, so a lot of physical events were happening. Not so many happening now. Hopefully that changes soon. But yeah, so I took advantage of that and I came and yo, I always able to attend events to learn stuff. There's stuff you will learn at events that you just cannot learn online. At that event, I met these, this 22 year old American and I just went up to him. We started having a conversation and I asked him about his business and that dude owned a cryptocurrency exchange. This dude was a millionaire and we just, were just there to have fun, to network. And he was, and so I asked him about the business and he was telling me step-by-step step the process of opening up a cryptocurrency exchange. And I was like, oh my goodness, this was something that I could not Google as I then, but I was listening to someone who did not care about writing books did not care about releasing YouTube videos. None of those things was just concerned about um, getting bigger at his business. And so at events, you know, you get to learn from a lot of people from all over the world. And so it was a great foundational moment for me and it helped with the foundation for what I'm doing now. I knew I wanted to be in this space. And this started with you reaching out at the conference that like you said, and just listening to the panelists or the speakers. Yeah. Oh yes. I went out to, I, I went, I picked two people's cards, give them my own cards. You know, I asked them questions. I wanted to know the different angles of, of the industry, what they were doing. And that's, that, that was my, my mission there. I mean, if it was just to listen, you could sit at home and watch it on YouTube. Right. Yeah. But you need to, a lot of the value will come from those that are not speaking. Those that are just attending. There's a lot of stakeholders there in the audience. And that's what I went for. Did it immediately make sense to you? Well, some things made sense to me. Um, but then you, you hear from five different people. I mean, it, 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 it all starts to come together. 
you know, I attended a couple of keynotes, a couple of breakout workshops, and everything started to make sense. And uh, when I got back to Lagos, I started experimenting on my own with buying cryptocurrency, exchanging okay. it for for Naira, which was not yet banned at the time, okay. but it's banned now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, so, so yeah. So that that's how I started. Were there a couple of mistakes or losses at the beginning? Well, people make losses when they are trading cryptocurrency. I wasn't. I was not trading cryptocurrency then. I was just oh, okay. experimenting because I, I heard that cryptocurrency was the new money, so it it could be used as money. So I was more interested in the use case in using cryptocurrency to pay for goods and services, and also accepting cryptocurrency as a means of payment for my own goods and services. Because there's this thing I I I I thought about in 17, 18, 2017, called the third world fence. And that is a wall that locks out uh, third world natives and third world residents from fully participating in the global economy. And I'll, I'll explain that third world fence. So Mark Zuckerberg and the Google guys, you know, somewhere in Silicon Valley can create a Google, can create a Facebook, and they can reach out from the United States and take my money here in Lagos, Nigeria. But can I also create something like that and reach out and take their money from the U.S.? No. Why? No PayPal, no Stripe. Mm. Okay. That is the third world fan. So at that time, there was a lot of issues with Nigerians who had great value to share with the world, but payment was a big problem. This was before, you know, the pay stacks and co really came in to start solving. So I started experimenting with how cryptocurrency could help us um, scale that fence. And so that's what really drew me to it, the payment side. So if, it was, if it's just payment sides, you don't really lose money. It's those that are trading and using it as an investment and a value that you know, have the risk of losing and the prospect of gaining. Okay, okay. From your experimentation, any interesting insights you found or lessons? Well, it was cool. I mean, you could, you know, buy and you could buy stuff with, in crypto. You could sell stuff. It was good. Um, one, one thing that happened, though, was that, you know, while I was experimenting, I, I accepted Bitcoin as a means of payment for some of my products at the time um, on my Luno wallet. And to be honest, the amount of money I was charging at that time for that product was pretty small. So... And most people actually paid cash and with bank transfers and all. If a tiny percentage paid me in Bitcoin. So what happened was that I actually forgot about the Bitcoin that was in that wallet because it was very small. Oh, okay. It was in 2017. It was when this year people started shouting, ah, Bitcoin to the moon, to the moon, to the moon. <laughs> I said, wait, wait, wait. I was now feeling, you know, if you, when people are shouting about the, their, their gains in Bitcoin, if you do not invest early, you will just be quiet <laughs> at one corner. And be like, this is making too much noise, please. Lower your voice, mm. you know? So I was in that gang. I was like, ah, I've heard, I've heard, we've heard. You, you are making more of Bitcoin, we've heard. Uh, I said, wait, too. what happened to that, my Luno? You know, because when when Nigeria, you know, blocked off um, explicit cryptocurrency yeah. transactions, people weren't talking about Luno anymore. Because the, the, the appeal of the Luno wallets back then was, I think they were the only ones that you could pay, you could use your card, your Nigerian card, to pay to buy cryptocurrency. And if you had cryptocurrency, you could cash it out from Luno. They were the only ones in Nigeria. 
But the moment the Nigerian government outlawed that activity, nobody really cared much about Luno. People would rather prefer to go to Binance and Coinbase and oh, Trust okay. whatever and so on. Right. So even I had forgotten about Luno until this rave of the I said, wait, 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 wait. That time I was using Luno. <laughs> I had some coins there. I just went to check it. Almost the money I had there had gone time like times five. Wow. <laughs> it was times five. It was it was interesting. You know, so yeah, that was just the serendipitous, the serendipitous moments. Yeah, so I see. So yeah, money I just forgot there. You know, had increased in value because it was denominated in Bitcoin as at twenty eighteen. So so yeah, that's just one interesting thing I've discovered. Well, today I trade. I now have I've learned the trading side of cryptocurrency, and I'm trading now, even though I didn't. How did that? How did that happen? How did you learn? Because. Oh, I mean, you 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 sit on the internet and you see everybody shouting Dogecoin, Dogecoin, Dogecoin. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of asking God when, you <laughs> you jump into the free and ask how, you know. So I so this year, 2020, actually, for, since January no 2021, I mean, since January 2021, I've been reading all I can about cryptocurrency and using it to generate wealth and mm-hmm. and. And yeah, so I learned, I practiced, and that's how I got into it. And of course, when I accepted joining the board of a blockchain cryptocurrency company. How did um, it happen? Well, they, they saw my work in Nigeria and the CEO heard that I had relocated to Dubai. I just moved to Dubai in November last year. Okay. So he had seen my work with Head Start Africa and my awards and everything I had done internationally. And when he heard I was, I, ha, I was now based in Dubai, he said, yo, we're just opening up an office in Dubai and I'll be coming there soon. Can we have a conversation? And he came over, we had a conversation um, and it just seemed like a fantastic idea. And I, and I, and I came on board. Yeah. So, but, but that's coming on board. That even made me, made me ev- go and research even more. Cause like, I can't I be can't imagine. Yeah. something I don't <laughs> have a full grasp of. So even though I knew it, you know, on the periphery before this made me like go deep and spend hours and hours learning and consuming content on what this was about. Did you have any doubts before accepting the offer? Well, yes, because I mean, this is a, this is a, company that also has a cryptocurrency exchange and all that it's kind of like being a it's kind of like being a bank right and if you are like like a bank you are holding people's money or you are in charge of, of people's money um there's the risk of you know something going wrong and you being seen as fraudulent i mean i, I built my name over the years you could google me and not find anything negative you you know Anything you find about me online is about my awards, my exploits, what my followers and my audience, good things they have to say about me, nothing negative. So building the, that name over the years, you know, and, you know, you are directing growth or you're on the board, you're part owner of a cryptocurrency exchange, you're holding people's money. What happens? So one of my biggest fears is, okay, what happens if the exchange gets hacked? Because even the best of the best, they get hacked and people's money is moved. You know, Binance got hacked, you know, not too long ago. I think it, I don't, I don't know what the year was. Um, another one, KuCoin, got hacked the other day. Now, we have never been hacked, but even the best of the best get hacked. Is there a potential rep- reputation damage that comes with that? I don't know. Those were the, 
fears I had, perhaps they were unfounded, but you know, I thought about it thoroughly before accepting it. I'm like, you know what? Let's give it a go. So you had the fears and you just decided to put them aside and give it a go. Yes, because you only live once. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, interesting. Yeah. And how has it so been? My, okay, my, my, my philosophy is this, that look, in, in, in 70 years, or let me be generous, in 80 years, okay, let me just be more, be, be more um, encompassing. In 100 years, you, me, everybody listening to this episode of this podcast will be dead. Gone. In 100 years, we will all be gone. Nothing will matter. It puts into perspective some of the things that we take as very big problems or big challenges or big embarrassments. In 100 years, none of this will matter. None of the people concerned will matter. We will all be dead, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Now, that is not an excuse to live life recklessly, but it is a, a, a challenge for us to live our best lives. If there's anything that you know you should be doing, uh, it's somewhere, you know, in, in I think in the book of Proverbs, um, whatever you put your hand to do, do it with all your might because in the land of the dead where you are going there is no work there is no wisdom there is no understanding there is no knowledge so this is the realm where we can express wisdom and knowledge and excellence and virtue and creativity and by all means we should give it our all because our time is finite is what makes us different from immortal beings if they exist it's what makes us different because we are mortal, we live our lives with a sense of urgency to get the best, uh, to get good stuff done. And so why not? So I feel like if you spend all your time contemplating and thinking and wondering, is this the right move back and forth? Time is passing you by, man. You know, make your best analysis and based on your better judgments, take action. Whatever happens, take responsibility. Mm, mm, interesting. But how do you then draw that balance between living recklessly and living your best life? Well, reckless is well, reckless is subjective, I think. Um, so for me, jumping out of an airplane um, now in 2021, jumping out of an airplane, parachuting, I might call that reckless, right? In 2015, I did not call that reckless. There's, there's actually a video of me paragliding in Brazil. Um, the videos on my, in, in my, on my oh, IGT. Okay. You know, it is the most dangerous thing I ever did. I don't know <laughs> why, you know, and, and yeah, you know, I, 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 was, I was a younger man then. My, I was trying to impress my girlfriend, you know, who was <laughs> so I didn't want to chicken out and look like, you know, I, I couldn't do it. So, we drove up to the top of a mountain peak in Brazil and you know, it's, it's crazy. And I jumped off and I was like, I was so frightened, but I didn't show it, you know, but, and then we landed. I was like, yeah, 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 did it. But not, I, I don't see myself doing that again, <laughs> you know, mm. because mm. now, you know, I've grown so much and so many people and institutions depend on me. What happens if I die? <laughs> you know, I, I, I get to think about those things now. 
as at 2015, well, I didn't have that many people who would miss me or that many people who would say, oh, if he, if he, if John Abidi is dead or out of the picture, um, this is going to stop working. That's going to stop working. You know, but I have that now. And so I have to be more careful and conscious of the, of the things I say yes to, the things I say no to. And I've got to just be more responsible because my life is no longer just about me. So that helps me draw the, draw that line. I can't just, you know, when people say on social media, Oh, do what makes you happy. If it makes you happy, it's okay. No, 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 Stop it. You know, that's for people who don't have as much responsibility. You know, as we say with great power comes great responsibility. When you come into a place of leadership, you understand that even your personal choices have gravitas and affect not just you, but other people. And as you grow even bigger, they don't just affect other people. They might start to have an institutional effect. If anything happens in Jeff Bezos's life, it affects the institution. So he can't even do things. He can't even do things just on his own. He has to think of the bigger picture. So yes. What does that then mean for, I mean, <laughs> does it mean you don't, I don't know, you don't live your life for just you or you don't do things you like or that pleasure you, or I don't know, you always have to think about others. Yes, you always have to. If you're a leader, you always have to. Now, if I were nobody, if I were, um, and you know, I'm not saying I've attained any by any means, but if you have, if you were a person of lesser consequence to the public, fine, you can live life the way you like. You know, you can live, you can really live life the way you like. And nobody cares. Nobody will bat an eyelid. But I mean, you got, you remember when Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan's podcast and he, he smoked, he smoked marijuana on Joe Rogan's um, podcast. The minute he did that, the shares of Tesla dropped drastically. Now we can make the argument that, okay, well, over time, the share price, it bounced back, but it dropped in that moment, showing that what one private individual does because of how big he has become and not just big, but how consequential he has become to the destinies of other people. What he does affects other people. And so, um, even though he probably does smoke marijuana, he probably does that in, in, in private, but yeah. bringing that out on camera in public, it can have consequences. There was a time that Elon Musk was tweeting pretty recklessly in the past. And you know, he was fined once or a couple of times by the SEC because you know, his, they, they believed that his, his tweets were having effects on the stock markets. Can you imagine that? <laughs> so they, mm, mm, they literally have to seize it. Who sees his phone? Well, not only sees his phone, but they have to. You know, they, they, just some form they, of restriction. They, yeah, that's to put some restrictions on him. That you can you can't just be going crazy tweeting like that. You know, the stock market is is you know depending on your tranquility and state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> just, just relax, man. <laughs> you know. So after he, he was fined a couple of times, then you know he stopped it, and you know it's been it's been good ever since. He has now carried that behavior to cryptocurrency to help us pump the price of Dogecoin, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So yeah, so what one man does can affect a lot of things, even though, you know, this way, when I was pumping Dogecoin, I was invested in Dogecoin. So he, he, he helped make me some money by tweeting about Dogecoin and the price went up and I was able to sell. Um, but, but it just shows it, it can work in the positive. It can also work in the negative. So we always have to be um, mindful. It doesn't, 
apply to every human being. But those of us who have stepped forward and said, you know what, we want to be public figures, we want to be leaders of institutions, you know, it's just a responsibility of the path that it demands. Mm. Mm. Okay. So in, so in last year, November, you decided to move to Dubai. Could you talk about yes. the world of what prompted that? Yeah, so I mean, I'd been wanting to move for a while. Um, I'd wanted to move for a while, but you know, I'd been slowing down about it. But I just thought that Dubai was a great place to expand from. Um, I love the fact that it's uh, it's 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 got the kind of incubating ecosystem that suits what I want to do. They have the people, they have the personnel, they have the culture. And I thought, you know what, let's try it out, see if it works out for me for a while. And I just might um, make it more permanent. So I did that for a couple of months. I liked it and I just chose to make it my base. Mm-hmm. Was, well, was it an easy decision to move, leave everything in Nigeria and start afresh, just start a new life in Dubai? Oh, yeah, it was pretty easy. I mean, I'm not married, so I didn't have that many consultations to make. But I've always built my business in the cloud. So it's I, I, ne- I never had a physical office in Nigeria. Everything was online, you know. And before then, I used to leave, go to some country and stay for months at a time. In 2019, I, I lived in Brazil for, for four months, you know, and... Ev- my work went on fine. I held my webinars. I serviced my clients and I put out my products as usual. Um, so I, I did that like every year. I would just move from place to place, travel. So moving to Dubai wasn't really that big of a decision. I just took I see. Leave and I, again, you only live once. <laughs> mm. Okay. Uh, now you're 34, I think. Yes. Yes. What does it feel like? Do you feel fulfilled? How would you describe being 34? I feel energetic. I feel happy. I feel, I feel like at 34, I've, I've, um, I've achieved things that I'm happy with. And I have, um, I'm at a place where I feel optimistic about the future. And I started my journey pretty early-ish and everything that I've done, the people I've met, they, I mean, they've been mostly pleasant and pleasurable experiences. And, you know, I, I look back at 34 and I, I say thank you to my younger self for getting on this path early. And it's also a commitment to my much older self that, you know what, I'm going to make this a hell of a ride. <laughs> Mm. When you got on the path early, how old were you? Well, um, I would, well, right from when I was in university, well, right when I was a kid, I've always been, been drawn to computers. When I was a kid, I accidentally learned a programming language. Accidentally. That's a weird thing to say. I mm. think I was like eight, nine years old. And my aunt in the UK sent us, uh, sent me a, ber- was it a birthday or a Christmas present. And it was one of those mini laptops. It wasn't quite a laptop. It was a toy that looked like a laptop. The company name was VTech. Um, I remember that from the logo on the package. So it was a 
toy that mimicked a laptop and would play on it. So there was this thing there that was called BASIC. I didn't know that it was a programming language. I thought it was a game like the other games. Uh, and I, I learned okay. how to do the inputs so I could get the outputs. And I was so fascinated. Man, many years later, when I got into Benson at Hosa University to study computer science, they taught us um, basic, not basic, they taught us visual basic, yes, an advanced basic. They taught us visual basic programming as a course in school. And I was like, hold on a sec, this looks familiar. Why does this programming language look like something I've seen before? I'm like, oh my goodness, this, wasn't this the game I was playing when I was a kid? Ah, uh, I see. <laughs> and here okay. it was, I had learned to program when I was a kid, but I didn't know what was programming. So yeah, I've always been on this path. I've always worked in computing. And even while I do my digital marketing and my teaching, my public speaking, my tech edge, my tech background has always given me a unique edge and a competitive advantage. So yeah, that's as far back as it goes. And um, I'm just glad that it provides me, it provided me a foundation for where mm. I'm headed. In just a moment, John will be talking about his early childhood experiences and lessons, as well as the defining moments that shaped who he's become today. Stay with us, I'm Oshaye, and you're listening to Origins Africa podcast. Hi, dear listener. If you love our show, please leave us a review on iTunes and Apple Podcast. You can also send us a tweet or comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. We love to read from you. Nope, not later. Yes, I read your mind. Do it now. Thanks a lot. Also, click the subscribe button and share with a friend. Let's make a difference together, one origin story at a time. Catch our one-to-one newsletter where we share with you one lesson, two quotes, and one question from each episode published. You'll find it at originsafrica.substack.com originsafrica.substack.com If you like it, please click the like button, leave a comment, share with a friend, and subscribe. Also, you can now watch video snippets of some of our guest interviews. Simply go to Origins Africa Podcast on YouTube. Origins Africa Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like our videos, and share. Let's make a difference together, one origin story at a time. Hi guys, welcome back to Origins Africa Podcast. So, what was growing up like for John? Yeah, growing up was interesting. Um, I grew up in a lower middle class family of Nigeria. And uh, that's a weird place to be because, again, my, my parents sacrificed a lot to ensure that we were all educated. For me in particular, they made sure that I attended schools that rich kids went to, even though we weren't rich. Um, we were broke broke as heck and it's it's weird when you're a broke kid going to a rich school um there are advantages and disadvantages but what the advantage there was that even though we didn't have much i could see others and so i could have an idea of how much better life could be you know and and so it, it gave me something to aspire to and so even at that age 
you know, we acted so in such a classy way. You could never look at us and know that we were from, you know, lower, a low income household. You could never, you could never look at us and just guess that we went, you know, sometimes days without food. <laughs> you would never, we, we just looked different um, because of where we typically hung out. So yeah, that, that was it. Um, I had my second, I had my GSS one at government college, Eric Moore, Lagos. Then my, I transferred to start my GS2 in federal government college, Ogbomosho, or your state. And I did that GSS3, GSS2, GSS3, SS1. I picked up a, my command of Yoruba language there before transferring to Port Harcourt to finish my secondary education. So that's what, that's what growing up was like. We were all over the country, Lagos, Ogbomosho, Port Harcourt. Was, was it just you or you and your family? Me and my family, but the one that only I did was when I went off to Bumosha for secondary school, uh, boarding school. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, when I left them in Ibuzo, Delta State, to go to school in Ben Sinidahusa University, Benin City. Um, okay. And, you know, and from Benin City, I moved on to Lagos. Okay. So going back a bit, um, you talked about, well, as a young kid, going to the rich school um you mentioned the advantages and disadvantages um because i'm thinking in my head um there would be maybe worse there i mean lucifer for instance could certain there could be insecurities um, oh yes that's a so, definite um disadvantage so how did you then as a young kid um how was that you experiencing that how would you describe it then i managed I manage them now. I <laughs> so when you say you manage, so could you talk about, I guess, the challenges first or the feelings and the struggles? Because, you know, you are, you are, yeah, because you're a kid, you know, you're not educated on things that we adults know, like, you know, coping mechanisms or you're just faced with stimulus and you react based on the wisdom available to you at the time, which is very limited as a child you know, very limited. So um, as a kid, yeah, there was that, you know, I had to um, get used to certain things not being available to me, you know. My kids would talk about where they spend, my mates would talk about where they spend their summer holidays and so on. And, you know, I had none of, the, none of those experiences, but I took mostly the advantage, the positives because from what they would say and their stories, I would imagine it gave me such a hyperactive imagination. And it made me always come top of class because guess what? When, we, when I got home from school, um, because of how we lived, there was, there was hardly electricity at home. And most of the time when there was electricity, our TV was usually bad. So because um, I was deprived of television and cartoons and comics i had to find a way to get entertained and so i began to read books so i would go into my father's library and read all the books in there so as a child i would read his books on economics macroeconomic principles i read his novels i read encyclopedias um when encyclopedias were a thing <laughs> i read um, medical encyclopedias because i thought i was going to be a doctor 
Ah, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I read so much and I picked up a strong reading habit. And so it made my grammar much better than my mates. I, I wasn't doing it intentionally. It was just a side effect of, you know, where life pushed me. Mm. So, but in the process, I developed a, a you know, better grammar. Um, my writing skills were being honed at that age. And so, yeah, I took that as an as an advantage. And it made me really, really smart because while other people had recreation that they were putting their time into, all I could do was read. And when you read, you imagine. And so it, it, it helped the person that I am today at, the, at those formative years. Interesting, interesting. Okay. And how did you find the transfers? I, I think I heard that transfers could be tough for some kids. Yeah. How yeah. did you find that? I, I hated them. For example, my time in FGCU Bumosho, I hated it. I totally hated it because. Why? So my my dad raised us all in in um, in isolation. So here's the thing: my 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 dad was a very sophisticated man, and but but unfortunately, he could only afford to raise us in some lower middle income, some low income area of Surulere. Now, for that level of sophistication, he was very aware of certain dangers that we kids were unaware of. Now, at the time, I didn't know this was why. I mean, it's when I grew into adulthood that I began to understand why he did certain things at the time. So, he never let us out of the house. The only time we left the house was to go to school and then we would come back home. We couldn't even play in the compound. The boundary was the door to the house. So we had to be indoors. I never understood this. I never understood why. And I later understood that it's because, you know, because of the volatility of the region that we lived in at the time, it was so easy to get into trouble, even if you were not looking for trouble. I mean, that was a time when, you know, little kids could steal and get burnt alive on the streets. You know, now this was a reality that I was unaware of. I never knew those things existed until much later. And that's to show you how much of a job my father did shielding us from those realities. I mean, if you were a kid that grew up in Ikoi and VI, you mean you were well shielded from those things. But in Surulere, these things happened every day. And we never knew because we were shielded indoors. So we never had friends in the neighborhood. We never mixed with the people. My dad didn't want anybody teaching us any bad habits. So we were, all we had were ourselves, me and my three siblings. You know, so we were raised in, in seclusion. And so out of the blue, you are telling this guy, this kid who is nine years old, that he's going to, a, he's going to boarding school in another state. What? <laughs> that was a disastrous endeavor, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because I, I wasn't prepared for, I wasn't prepared to leave the house at nine years old. I wasn't prepared to live in another environment outside of my house. Are you the first one? To... Yes, I'm, I'm the first child. I'm the first child. Okay. Yeah. So I was prepared for that. So it was kind of like a, a culture shock for me. My adaptation was tough and slow. And also because I've always been, been small for my size. I'm a bit small for my for my age. Oh, I'd always been okay. small for my age, you know. So when I was nine years old, I looked six. Huh. Yeah. I, even when I was even when I was twenty years old, I looked fifteen. 
which of course has its advantages <laughs> and its disadvantages as well. No, no, no. At that age, the disadvantage. Fully, but at this I guess. age, at this age, an advantage. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> you age well. Okay. You, you tend to age well. You look good for your age and all that. But then you just you're so frail and weak and skinny and you know you're you know you are you're just you're. I mean, it was it was it was it was crazy. It was it was terrible. You know. But you know. I went with it. I when I did the whole thing, my grades dropped drastically. I didn't give two hoots about school. Um, school was a survival. Were you bullied? Oh well, anybody who went to FGC would know that you are. You are, you are first of all dodging all the seniors. You know, you are spending all your energy dodging seniors, so there's no much energy spent on academics and all of that. So it was it was disastrous. But you know, it was what my parents uh, could afford at the time and. We had to bear up, play our parts. That time was over. After that, we had to move from Lagos to Port Harcourt and off I went, it was done. And so I transferred to a day school, secondary school in Port Harcourt and my grades went right back to the top where they ought to be. Hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, And in Port Harcourt, did you guys start experiencing the environment or you were still shielded? Yeah, we're still shielded, but it was a mix because we're now older and we're now able to accept certain realities. So my father could talk to us about, you know, what was, because I mean, there was a lot of gangs, even in the neighborhood, you know, we were situated in a place called Woji, Woji Estates, to be precise. So there were gangs there, all kinds of people, even in school, there were all kinds of people, um, you know, and you're young you want to have a sense of belonging you know it's very easy to be seduced by the gangs and next thing you're a criminal it just it just goes from zero to 100 real quick nobody just says oh, i want to come to this world and be a criminal you know it just happens you know your parents aren't watching this friend invited to a party next thing you're you're in deep but at that point you know we were older and we're able to understand okay this is why you have to be home by 5 p.m that was curfew 5 p.m <laughs> while it was still bright you know this is why this is this and this is that and you know again you can cut this out but you know nigeria has been a jungle right from day one you know it's been a jungle there was this nsars thing that was happening last year yeah and it only started where in the nsars that whole sars um, madness has been in for as long as nigeria has existed at least in indep- from independence extrajudicial killings and extortion, it's always been in existence. Again, this is something that as a young child or young adult, I did not even know about, but my father knew very well. And it's not something that my father really felt, my father was a very vulnerable kind of person who just give you orders and expect the orders to be carried out. If you understood, good for you, <laughs> you know. But the real reason for him keeping us sheltered, he didn't always feel vulnerable enough to share. You know, his biggest fear was that, no, I don't want to lose my kids. And if anything happens to my kids, I don't even have money to bail them out. You know, I don't even have money to even give a police officer to please let my kid out. He's not a bad person. So the best thing he could do was to tell us, hey, these are your boundaries. Don't go here. Don't go there. You know, and, and that helped us stay out of trouble until we're old enough to understand the larger realities that, look, you don't even have to be a criminal. You can just remind your business and, you know, Nigerian police can just victimize you. Mm-hmm maybe even murder you, and it just ends there. Just a curious question, with the restrictions and boundaries, how come you were rebellious? Well, 
at that age, um, I had an inclination for the, the, for the study of wisdom. Now, of course, I was rebellious inside, but um, so I, I had a healthy fear for pain. So I just felt like there was a lot of pain I could avoid in life if I could just listen to my dad. Um, okay. My dad is a human being, he's not perfect, but I felt like, you know, he's not perfect. Sometimes he's going to be wrong, but he's likely going to be right more times than he's wrong. So why not just listen to him? Maybe one day I'll understand why these things are supposed to be. Interesting. And what, do you, yeah. what, what, what would you say shaped this perspective you had? All right. So I remember one trip to the village um, in Ibuzo, Delta State, and then I was, I was pretty restive. Um, I wasn't like a troublesome person, but inside I had this boundless energy that I was looking for means of expression. But anyway, I was sitting at home alone. My dad had gone out and my, my father's friend um, came by. By the way, my father was a pastor while he was alive. And so his, his friends were mostly pastors. So his friend came by to see my dad. I said, okay, my dad is not home, but you know, you can sit here outside with me and wait for him. He'll be back soon. So both of us sat outside there. And um, while we're sitting there, there was this man who was walking with a limp on the streets. He was well-dressed, but walking with a limp and who was ringing a bell and yelling very loud, repent, repent, you know, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he, he didn't say exactly that. I think he said something like that in Igbo, you know, and I was, I was slightly irritated by what he was doing, honestly. Um, but anyway, I just sat there and just looked away. So my father's friend sitting there um, now turned to me to make conversation and he asked me, do you know why that man is limping? I said, no, I don't know. I don't know who he is. He said, ah, but that man, I can't remember his name, but he mentioned a man's name. I said, okay, what about him? He said that back in the day while he was, he was a younger man, that he had a lot of money. He was so wealthy, but everybody knew that he was a drug trafficker. You know, he used to smuggle drugs for the who is who in society. And at that, he had cars, he had money, he had friends, all kinds of people flocked around him and life was good, you know. And then one day he was, you know, doing his regular drug routes and, and all that. And he just felt like he could double the amount of money he was making by um, taking some extra drugs in some areas of his body he had never tried before. So he, he, okay, he basically put them up his butthole. We can censor that if you want to. Okay, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so he put them up his butthole and, you know, he wasn't going to get caught. But I think he, he got on the plane and as soon as he got on the plane, um, the story was that he began to sweat profusely and he collapsed. They had to rush him out of the plane um, to seek medical attention. And again, this was way back, back, back. Because it's, it's, it's not like today where, you know, medical science has really improved and come a long way. You know, that was way back. You know, nobody expects that you put hard drugs in that kind of place. So nobody would even suspect what's going on with you unless you're confessing. But the person that should confess has collapsed. So what are you going to do? <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, so by the time they could salvage anything, you know, um, there were some complications and some part of his buttock had to be removed in order to save his life. It was wow. complicated. He spent everything he had just saving his life at the hospital, in hospital bills. And of course, when you know you get caught like that, even if you're able to pay your way out of that problem, those who were giving the person 
drugs to smuggle will probably just disappear because this guy has become public. True. So his means of livelihood disappeared. All the cars, the houses, the properties, everything gone. And in that moment, he found God. Wow. What a wow. And so that's why now he's going around preaching and telling young people to um, be careful and all of that. And I'm looking at him like, man, did you have to go through all of that to simply learn what I know now? <laughs> like, did you, mm. did you really have to get whooped by life? I mean, I, I don't judge his decisions. I mean, things happen. People are formed by different circumstances, their environments, their upbringing, the different temptations. I get it. But there and then I said, hmm, that I would give a listening ear to wisdom wherever I could be found because I don't want to have to go through all this pain to learn something I could learn from instruction. People say that experience is the best teacher. Well, I see where that applies, but if you can learn from instruction, it's way faster. It is way faster. You can save yourself a whole lot of pain. So rather than wait for the experience, I mean, there's some experience that is inevitable, but where you can learn from instruction, trustworthy instruction and direction, I think you should take it. And so I took it. And so that story kept me straight. Now, who knows? I don't know if that whole thing was a fabrication or a machination that was planned by my father and his friend to keep his firstborn son in line. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's something you can do, but, you know, it was still a, was still a great lesson to learn. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So it's okay to say, should I say you had, um, you were, the person who had a greater influence on you was your dad growing up or was he your mom? Yes. My father. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't take anything away from my mom. My mom was a, a fantastic nurturer. She was, she took care of us. She took care of the house. She made sure that everyone was well catered to, um, when we went, when we snuck out of the house, I mean, cause there's a, there's a limit to which you can imprison us when we snuck out of the house to, <laughs> to play football and we would get okay. injured, you know, because our bodies were pretty tender because we were kept indoors. Mm-hmm. So we weren't very, we weren't strong like the street kids. So mm. we would get injured pretty easily. Uh, you know, she would catch us, first of all, beat us and then treat our wounds. <laughs> but we still go out again and, you know, and play football and once in a while, occasionally. Yeah. So, but when it comes, when it came to my philosophies in life and, building me as a man um, that came largely mostly from the relationship that I had with my father. And what, what would you say the key lessons were that he passed on to you or key life philosophies? Well, my, my, my father was a, was an extremist. Um, <laughs> he would wake me up at, at 4 a.m. I mean, equality, right? He should wake up the whole family, but no, he wake just me. <laughs> <laughs> he wake me up, bring me to the living room, and both of us would just start reading the book of Proverbs and he would ask me to explain it. I'm like, what can consign me now? How about I was just sleeping? I was just sleeping. <laughs> you know. and, and, and how old were you then? <sighs> like, okay, so I, I think I was like 
um, I think from when I turned 12. Because my father, again, like I said, he was some kind of extremist. So there's, there's this thing in Pentecostal Christianity that people made up and called the age of accountability. It's, there's no such thing. They just made it up. They said that because <laughs> Jesus Christ was 12 years old when he started teaching in the temple. So 12 years old is the age from where God holds you accountable for your actions. So they called it the age of accountability, 12 years old. So the moment I turn 12, we don't hear what again. I see. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that was it. You were you 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 were saying something before I told you. Where you're talking about um, the philosophies and lessons in past, and and then you're going on on how you would wake up at four a.m. You'd read proverbs and you explain. Oh yeah, so we read proverbs. We read the book of Psalms. You know, blessed is he who sits not in the seat of the scornful um, or in the way of the ungodly. My son, if sinners entice you, consent thou not, uh, you know, and I would learn these things back to back to back to back to back. And um, it, it was really intensified at the moment when I was leaving to boarding school because he wanted to be sure that I had a strong, I had strong philosophies um, guiding my way, um, you know, but because I was leaving the house, I was going to be exposed to a whole new different environment. I think his biggest fear was that I would get exposed to pornography, you know, outside the house, you know. Uh, but you know, we are we are human beings. The fear came to came to pass because I left the house. I went to boarding school. <laughs> for, so what you're talking about, man? You might just imprison me forever so that I will not see those things or know that they exist, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. But you know, but those sermons and those teachings really stayed with me and ensured that I did not make the mistakes that some of my mates in school then with lesser guidance made. Mm -hmm. So my mates in school, you know, they made some terrible mistakes that they didn't even know were mistakes at the time. Um, but because maybe their parents were so busy and so successful and accomplished that they didn't even have time to look at the kids. A lot of people I went to school with that were from rich households were not raised by their parents, they were raised by their housemates, mm. you know, so that some were raised by their drivers, you know, and so that was a silver lining for me that, you know, even though uh, because my dad, you know, my dad's circumstances were not as financially pleasant. He spent a lot of time at home and he could spend time with us and monitor us and teach us and actually school us on what life meant and how we should conduct ourselves as people of faith and as people who had great pride in where we're coming from. Okay. Okay. So your earliest dream or then was to be a medical doctor? Yes. And that was only because my uncle, my father's brother, who I really admired was a doctor. Oh, okay. Okay. So I assume you went to the science class. Well, yes, but you know, in primary one, the, again, I told you I went to rich kids school. So mm -hmm. I went to the one school that had a working computer back in my primary one. I don't know how old I was back then, but that was sometime in the, in the nineties in the mid nineties or mid, mid or early nineties. Uh, so this was, it's called, it was called Pampers private school. So primary one, we, they give us what they called computer science practicals. I never seen a computer in my life. And they led us to the computer lab laboratory and that the, the job or the exercise we were given to do was to play this game called Pac-Man. Now, I didn't get to play the game because others went ahead of me and were playing, but I was just watching and okay. I was hypnotized. Did, did, did you ever know about Pac-Man, the game? 
I don't think so. I don't. Okay, it's, it's it's like the old one of the oldest computer games ever, and I would okay. just is you would know it, but maybe not by the name. Is that game where there is this thing that is eating dots on a screen, and being chased by things all around the screen? I'm literally trying to Google it now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll see the gameplay. One of the oldest games ever. You know, and I was just transfixed. I had never, ever seen anything like it in my life. And that was where I handed my lab coat over to my uncle. I'm not doing it again. I'm going to be a computer scientist. I want to be in whatever field it was that created this thing. And that was where I made that decision. And did everybody accept or, or embrace the idea? Now, this is something that I did not see the importance of until I became a man. My father didn't care, you know, as long as I was going to be the best. Because if we, if we did not have money, at least I had to be coming first in class. That was the only thing we, mm. that, that, was the, that was the deal. Yes, we didn't have money, but the all we must have is that he can use us to brag that we are coming first <laughs> in class. So yes, if you like, if not doctor, you want doctor, just be coming first. <laughs> Computer, you want to computer shall be coming first. There's no, there's no second house, second place in this house. So whatever it was, now I didn't understand how much of an asset this was that my dad allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do. I thought it was normal until I got to university and I met people in university that why studying law? Mm, my father said you study law. You know, I met friends who would say, oh, I'm studying medicine, even though I hate it. And I don't think I was born to study medicine, but I'm doing this for my parents. And I, and I felt like, what? Do people like that exist? Because I came from a household where that was never an issue. Do what you like, but just be the best at it. You know, again, I don't know what my father would have said. I don't know if he would have maintained that philosophy if I said I wanted to read, to read poetry. Uh, but anyway, mm. we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. Um... Just a few more questions, I think, before I move past your childhood. Um, yeah. I know we had talked about the um, secondary school bit and the rich um, kids' school. Uh, so, growing up, then, did you weather any esteem issues you had or insecurity issues? Oh yes, um, I used to I've be incredibly. I used to be incredibly short. Matter of fact, my father secretly thought that, you know, I was going to be a dwarf. You were short? Interesting. I was short. Yeah. I was always short. As a matter of fact, when I started growing, my father was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my, my father has, has had a very confusing and contradictory character sometimes. He, he saw me one day like, ah, you are growing. <laughs> <laughs> Like, is that not <laughs> Like, what do you want, old man? <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, I was always short in all my classes. I was always short, and so yeah, that that did come with its um, self-esteem issues. My growth started like in my in my what mid twenties. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I was a very late bloomer. My physical development started really late. I didn't have any facial hair until very late, <laughs> you know, and, and, and all of that. So, yeah, you could be, you could be an SS1 student. People think that you are a JS1 student. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just, it, it could be And really how did weird. that affect you then? Not really that much. I wasn't, see, because of the kind of childhood I had, 
Okay. Um, my mind created coping mechanisms. And so I always saw the bright side of things. Okay. We, I mean, things were so bad. I mean, there, there, there are a number of things, in a number of ways you can react to that kind of um, deprivation in childhood. Things were so bad. Some people would either go maybe insane or become criminals or your brain, because it has to survive somehow, it just creates a reality inside a reality. It just gives you a way to cope. And so my way of coping was always looking at the bright side, always looking at looking for something I could look forward to that would be pleasant. So I would look for the bright side. So how did I cope? How did it affect me? Not that much. It wasn't really much mm. of an issue. I so knew that. You've naturally been an optimist? Yeah, it made me naturally an optimist. I knew that, yes, there were things I couldn't do because I was naturally smaller than my peers. You know, I couldn't do track and field. I mean, it was so embarrassing. When I was in SS2, because of my size, they made me run with um, JS3 boys. <laughs> so I, I couldn't even run with senior boys because oh, I was wow. small. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at the school I attended in Port Harcourt had a rule that all the boys must be involved in sports. You, you could not- Otherwise you wouldn't have participated? I wouldn't have participated, but well, that was embarrassing. Um, and even among junior boys, I was not even first, I was like fourth or so. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so. So that was crazy, you know, but I just took it as humor. And I think it contributed also to my, to my great sense of humor because I always found a laugh in everything and a joke in everything. I found a way to make it a light situation to make it so. How did it affect me? Not really. I mean, things happen. Not really. I feel like there were worse things happening in the world than, oh, boo-hoo-hoo, I'm short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was good. I was good, basically. Um, the, the, the biggest thing I, I, I had to deal with was just uncertainty about the future. Okay. You know, because things were pretty bleak. Okay, what university would I go to? Who would I become in life? What, the, what was the likelihood I would ever become like Bill Gates? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Bill Gates <laughs> at the time, you know, um, because I was born in Black Africa. I was born in Nigeria, Third World Africa, um, arguably the poverty capital of the world. What's, what are the odds that you can really live your dreams? You know, mm-hmm. so that's where most of my, my mind spent its energy, not in the things I knew were temporary. Okay. 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 And it was your upbringing that was, was, was that what made you always strive to be the first or the best? Oh yes. It, it made me really competitive since I couldn't compete in sports. Um, I could kick everyone's ass in academics. <laughs> yeah. And later on at computing, you know, so I overcompensated for that by being very studious and having a sharp wit. Mm, okay. Defining moments when you were growing up, I heard you talk about, I am sure the experience you had with your dad's friend where he told you about the man who lived. I am sure that must have been a defining moment for you. Oh, yes. Shaped who you've become. Any other defining moments you had growing up that shaped who you've become today? Oh, defining moments. Um, that's something I have to think deeply about because I don't remember that much. Um, but one defining moment was the, the first time I ever saw a computer in my school. Okay. And it just, it just pulled me. 
and it gave me a sense of direction. It was my compass to who I would become in future. Okay. And I think about the school that it was and how lucky I was to attend that school that likely had the only computer in that area or in that local government, very possibly. And what if I didn't go to that school? How different my life would have been, mm-hmm. you know? So um, it, it made me consider myself very lucky. That was a quite a moment um, for me. Um, another moment for me um, would be when I got admission to Benson Dahosa University in Benin City. Okay. Um, but before then, I was first at the University of Port Harcourt. Oh my goodness. What I'm going to say now is just going to de-brand Nigeria, but it's <laughs> So I got into the University of Port Harcourt. Now in Nigeria, people don't study what they want to study. The government gives you a course sure. to study. And that's what you have to study. It's, it's terrible, a very um, terrible way to raise what you want to call future leaders, you know. So anyway, you say, oh, I want to study this. You say, nope, you are going to study that. It's, it's crazy. Anyway, I always wanted to study computer science, but they said I had to study physics, electronics. Okay, cool. I had friends who were studying computer science and I would check, I would always ask them what they were doing. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but just to backtrack a bit. Uh, I think the experience I have is that maybe you're a jam and you yes. didn't get... Uh, so is that what happened with the University of Port Harcourt? You didn't meet cutoff well, for computer and you were told to study physics, electronics, or it was something else? Well, I didn't meet the cutoff, but hey, come on now. Maybe don't meet the cutoff, but they get in there. So here's the thing. I didn't meet the cutoff for computer science. So who now manufactured a cutoff for physics? And what are you basing my ability to understand computing? Hmm. Let me tell you what it was. Chemistry. I had an F9 in chemistry, and that's what disqualified me from, from computer science. Oh, okay. What has chemistry got to do with computing? <laughs> Valid question nothing you know so that's what disqualified me and so that just made no sense but anyway i stuck with it in the hopes that if i invested a year you know they would allow me to switch but that didn't happen but anyway i was watching my my mates who did computer science and the funny thing is that some of those guys who did computer science their initial hope was to do medicine but they were bounced from medicine to computer science Okay. You know, another guy, he really, his dream was do civil engineering, but they bounced it from there to computer science. So we're all misfits. I we're, see. We're, we're all misfits in the different departments. Those who came there and actually studied what they really had in mind were like the, the minority, like the top 1%, you know. But anyway, I would check out my mates and what they were doing in class. And I saw one of them, they were given an assignment. The programming, this was what year, 2000 and, um, 2004. The assignment this guy was given was in Fortran, like Fortran. I was like, wait a minute. Now, my father had his master's degree in, in London in 1984. After he was done with his master's, he, he brought a truck, a, you know, these trunk boxes that our parents used back in the day. He had a whole trunk box full of books he brought back from London. Okay. So when I was born, when I, be, when I grew up, you know, like I told you earlier, and I, I used to go and ravage his library and read whatever I could find. I remember seeing a book in my father's library called Fortran 77 for Humans. 
I said, oh my God, mm. what my father studied in school in 1984 is what they are teaching computer science students in University of Port Harcourt in 2004. <laughs> what is this? And we'll see them hunting over a computer, programming Fortran. Hey! Anyway, I knew I had enough. And um, I worked out some sort of compromise with my father and his brothers, and they agreed to sponsor my change of school. And they sent me to a private university where they allowed you to study whatever you wanted. <laughs> and that okay. was Benson Idahosa University. So I, I just gave you that build up, say that one of my, defi my defining moments was getting admission to BIU. Mm. I am blessed to have gone to that university. I, I never stopped talking about them. I'm like a brand ambassador almost, right? I am so blessed that I got to go there. That was the first time I saw a guidance and counseling unit that worked in Nigeria. Mm. Okay. Like I got there the first day and the woman said, hello. Um, so what, so she looked at my form and I filled in computer science. She said, are you sure you really want to do computer science? Let me explain your options. Ah, I have options. <laughs> are you serious? I was shocked. She said, Interested. She said, yeah, you have options. If, you're, if you want to graduate and have an edge in a math-related field, you can study computer science and math. It's a, it's a course option on its own. However, this requires a great deal of math. If you don't like math a lot, I would advise you don't do this one. Um, there's also computer engineering. Computer engineering has many applications. She would advise you and tell you the risks of each one, what they would entail, and how Interested. each one how each one would affect your school life. In case you're not someone that likes to read a lot, just, huh. you know, do something easier. You know, she would advise, say, computer science and math, computer science and economics, in case you wanted to have work in finance someday, you know, computer science and education, then there was computer engineering, there was even computer science and physics. And then there was just the pure computer science. So, like, oh, so based on everything I've said, which one do you think you would um, have a better experience with? You don't need to answer now. You can go to your hostel, think about it. You have a week to come back and let me know and uh, put it in your form. I was like, I, I never experienced that. <laughs> uh, you know, when we're in school, BIU, people in government, like federal schools will say, ah, you people are living in a, a glorified secondary school, a glorified daycare. I say, you yeah, I can't remember you. that. You guys don't know what you are missing. I've, I've been to both, so I know the difference. Mm. I never had to look over my shoulder for cult activities for one day because they were non-existent. They policed that aspect of student life so rigorously so that we could finish, we could just focus on our academics. And that's why you see that a lot of these universities um, churn out a lot of first-class graduates. People who come from other schools quarrel with this because they're like, ah, if there are so many first-class graduates, that means they make things easy for them. No, that is not the case. The exams are just as hard, but we are allowed to focus. Lecturers are not allowed to victimize you. We don't go on strike. Um, we don't go on strike. There's no call to activity. The school university is safe. You know, the school keeps us in. They don't, you know, so they expel bad elements as quickly as they prop up. So you just focus on school, you know? And so that was such a fantastic aspect of my... Look, I remember just the moment I entered Uniport was when they were just closing the nine months as to strike. Do you know what nine months is to be on strike for? 
2003 was when mm. they were just ending a nine month strike. Now that nine months, um, these guys at Jobaman used to build a startup. <laughs> that was the nine months. Read their story. I read their story. You know, one of the founders is, is a it's a it's a it's an acquaintance of mine. You know, um, we we both won the future awards at some point. So you know, we had some conversations and we've done some 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 work together. And I in their story, they were both students of I think Obafemi Awolowo University. If yeah, and that nine months strike hits, and they were like, ah, Omo, school ends starting anytime soon. Let's do something productive. They use nine months strike to create a startup that changed the world. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's just to show you the impact of that kind of strike. Yeah. Nine months strike. You know, if somebody got pregnant, then the child would not come out at that time. Nine months strike. Who does that in good conscience? But anyway, you know, so you so private university, there's no one's there's there are fewer uncertainties of oh, when will I graduate? You know, time is passing. Sure. Sure. You come for a four-year course, you are spending seven years or more, you know, so. So that was that, that certainty. And then, you, you know, uh, BIU, well, that was the first time I saw a computer lab that worked. I was actually shocked. Like that's, that just showed you the level of trauma. I didn't expect, I just pushed the power button just as a joke. Like I didn't expect it to come on. And it came on, huh? it's working. You weren't expecting it to come on. Yeah, because the ones in Uniport were for photos. Oh, wow. <laughs> they didn't work you know but the computers in the lab they all worked and at that time there was limited internet all over Nigeria but you could go to the library in BIU and with your library card you had access to one hour of internet access every day mm. I was like what? I used this well you had to show that you were using it for research so yeah I showed I was using it for research and amongst other things amen so I, <laughs> so I took advantage of my one hour every day. I mean, that was fun. I I spent my days and my nights in the computer lab, okay. and 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 that really formed uh, my foundations. They 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 helped me. I really grew so much, and and yeah. So turning point for me was um, being admitted to BIU. It it properly incubated me and set the foundation for who I am today. What were you often researching about? Um, well, I was I was just exposed to the luxury of computers at the, for the first time. So I was just learning to program like, okay, what do I need to program? So in, in, in 100 level, that's our first year, we weren't taught any core programming classes, but from okay. our second year, they taught us web design. I mean, guy, web design as a as mm. a course in school. Ah, here mm. you tried for also. Web design <laughs> was a course in school. Visual basic programming. I learned to program that as a course in school. Um, the only one I hated was Pascal. Okay. But you know, I managed. We learned assembly language in school. Uh, what else did we learn? We learned um, networking, computer networking. Mm-hmm. Our networking curriculum was so good that you could you could you could you could write the course in school and then go outside and write the professional exam CCNA and pass. Wow. Um, what else did we do? So the whole the whole thing. So I and then we did PHP web programming, JavaScript. Interesting. 
in computer school, in, and, and not, not just, just doing it, we had the computer lab where we could go and practice if we didn't have a laptop, because few of us had laptops at that time. So if you didn't have a good computer lab, you could practice, save your documents, you know, our little diskettes <laughs> that we used at the time um, before we graduated to flash drives and memory cards. Um, mm. And so that was such, such an amazing thing. So my research was, you know, I wanted to look for how to program like a calculator, you know, the first things that we did. Then I moved on to learning how to create web pages. I started designing web pages with, with Microsoft front page. And then we moved on to Macromedia Dreamweaver before it became Adobe Dreamweaver. And, you know, we just built that up from there. So that's what mostly I was researching. And, I've, and of course, so some of our other courses, so I needed some research. Um, I would go research, but it was mostly things that would help me to program because I was so, so fascinated by it. So John graduated from Benson Idahosa University. But like he said earlier, he graduated with the uncertainty of how he would live his dreams. Join us next week as we explore how John Obidi moved on from Benson Idahosa University to become the social media expert, personality development expert, and online business consultant, amongst other things we know him for today. Thank you for listening to our show this week. If you liked it, do leave us a review, a comment, and share with your friends. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend and to tell another friend. We would also love to read from you. So please do send us a tweet or leave a comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. You can also write to us at OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com. Remember, do subscribe at wherever you get your podcast. Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, amongst others. Catch our one-to-one newsletter where we share with you one lesson, two quotes, and one question from each episode published. You'll find it at originsafrica.substack.com. Originsafrica.substack.com. And of course, if you like it, please click the like button, leave a comment, share with a friend, and don't forget to subscribe. I'm Oshaya, and you've been listening to Origins Africa podcast. Bye for now. My father told me life is not a bit of roses. You gotta put your way to the plow, do the work to smell the roses. Don't back down. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, don't back down. When things get tight, keep the drive, keep the faith, stay in the fight. Draw strength from the Yeah.